turn with me to John chapter 9. Gospel of John chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 35 through 41. And considering the eyes of faith. John chapter 9, verse 35 through 41. The eyes of faith. Give attention to God's holy word. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have ordained the preaching of your word to be that primary means of grace. We have gathered now this evening in obedience to your command to worship you and to hear from you. We pray, O Lord, that you would pour out your spirit so that we might not refuse him who speaks from heaven, but that we might have grace whereby we might serve you acceptably with godly fear. We ask you to do all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the human eye is one of the most fascinating parts of our bodies. If you've done any investigation into the human eye, you'll know that it is uh, one of the most complex structures in the entire human body. It is made up of so many intricate parts that all have to operate at the same time in the right way for the eye to function. You know, I've shared this illustration before, but my children started playing a game, and I'd encourage you with your kids to do it. If you go into the bathroom look into the mirror, leave the lights on, and put your hands over your eyes for a couple of seconds. Take them off really fast. You'll see your iris close really quick. You can actually see it closing as you look in the mirror. Now, the iris is only one part of your eye, but it's perhaps the most important part of your eye. You see, what's happening there is when you look in the mirror and you have your eyes covered, and then you remove your hands very quickly, the light of the bathroom is hitting your eye. And the iris, if it's working properly, responds in the right way. It closes your pupil. It reduces the amount of light that can get into your eye. That's what healthy eyesight is. You see, eyes are an organ that's given to receive light. That's their whole purpose. They are given to receive light. They have the capacity to take in light and then to show us what is in the world around us. And one of the ways it does that is by opening and closing the iris. Well, just like the human eye, the faith of the Christian is a similar kind of thing. Saving faith is a capacity that God gives to his people. And this saving faith is, as it were, an organ, just like the eye. 
And the purpose of faith is to simply receive the light. The way that faith functions is that when the light of the gospel shines upon it, it responds appropriately. Saving faith is very much like your eye. It's been given a capacity to do a certain thing. Now, oftentimes, we don't think of faith in this way. We think of faith as a one-time act. We think that when we uh, express our faith in Christ, either when we were admitted to the Lord's table or when we were baptized, when we converted to the faith of the Lord Jesus, we think saving faith is that one thing. But what we're going to see in this passage and what we'll see from the Westminster Confession shortly is that saving faith is actually a capacity, a willingness to receive the light of the gospel. And specifically what we're going to see is that those who have the eyes of faith receive the light of Christ, those that do not have the eyes of faith reject the light of Christ. Very simple, those that have the eyes of faith receive the light of Christ, and those that do not have the eyes of faith reject the light of Christ. There's two parts to our passage this evening, verses 35 through 38 are the eyes of faith, and verses 39 through 41 are the eyes of unfaith or unbelief. Verses 35 through 38, the eyes of belief or the eyes of faith. Verses 39 through 41, the eyes of unbelief. Now, before we get into the details of this passage, we need to keep a little bit of John's context in mind. Remember, back in John chapter 8, Christ said of himself in verse 12, John 8, 12, no need to turn there. Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. And then at the beginning of John chapter 9, he reiterates this idea, but with a more specific application. John chapter 9, verse 3, the disciples asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? Who sinned? And Jesus tells them, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world... I am the light of the world. And so what John is presenting to us in these chapters is that Jesus Christ, by virtue of who he is and the Father's uh, decree for what his mission should be, is the light. The light of Christ shines from his person no matter what. You know, the book of Malachi talks about the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says when this messenger of the covenant comes, he will be called the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. And he's describing this light of glory that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, just like the light of the sun, it is irresistible and it shines upon everything. Now we might ask ourselves... Why do some people believe and some people don't? Well, it's the same reason some people can enjoy the light of the sun and others cannot. Some have been given the eyes to see, others are still blind. And so now we look at what it means to have the eyes to see. Notice in verse 35, uh, uh, also the, the, the rest of the context here in John chapter 9, you'll remember 
This man was born blind. Jesus has healed his physical eyesight. And in healing his physical eyesight, the works of the Father, the glory of the Father, is manifest in him. Well, there's a dispute about him. He's brought into the synagogue. The Jews abused their authority as officers in the church and said, if anybody confesses he is the Christ, we will excommunicate him. Well, this man, having experienced the power of Christ, gives testimony that this man has come from God, and of course, they excommunicated him. They kicked him out of the church. Now we find, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? Notice, first off, just out of verse 35, some incredible encouragement that comes here. God has ordained his church to govern and rule over his congregation. God has ordained church officers for the good of the people to direct them in the faith of Christ. But sometimes, like we see in this passage, like we see in the days of the Reformation, like we see many instances today in our own day, the church becomes corrupt. The church, in the use of the keys, fails in their mission And it can be tempting to think that, well, if the church rejects you, God has rejected you. But notice what happens. This man was excommunicated. This man was kicked out of the synagogue unlawfully, tyrannically, unjustly, and Christ goes to find him. Christ goes and seeks him out. Christ goes and talks with him. Ordinarily, when someone is excommunicated lawfully, according to the word of God and the due use of the keys of the kingdom, they are cast out and handed over to Satan. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, that when you excommunicate someone, they are turned over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme. And ordinarily, that's what happens. But in this case, the failure of this church government does not exclude this man from the fellowship of Christ. And so he comes to him And then he asks him a question, do you believe in the Son of God? I want to draw your attention to the Westminster Confession of Faith before we go any further, because we need to have an understanding of what saving faith is. If you look in the Blue Trinity Hymnal, page 680, the Blue Trinity Hymnal, 680, You'll find the Westminster Confession of Faith printed in the back. And chapter 14 describes saving faith. The divines write, they say that the grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. Now notice what they say next. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word for the authority of God Himself speaking therein. Notice that the grace of faith that the Holy Spirit gives to his people produces a capacity. It produces a disposition 
to receive whatever the Word has to say to us. It produces, like the iris of the eye, the ability to receive the light of the gospel. Now, in John chapter 9, Christ begins asking this man, do you believe in the Son of God? And notice how he responds. He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe him? Notice that this man has a capacity, he has a willingness to receive whatever the Lord is going to teach him. He knows Jesus Christ as a prophet. He knows that this man has been sent from God. He knows that the authority of God is upon him. And so he recognizes Christ, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, tell me who this man is. Tell me who the Christ is and I'll believe him. He has the capacity to receive whatever the Word of God tells him. Notice, secondly, the humility that this man displays. Christ comes to him with a very simple question. Do you believe in the Son of God? And the man's response, because he recognizes the authority of God resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ, is humble, submissive, and receptive. One of the key traits of saving faith is humility. We're going to see that later on with the Pharisees, but at this point, recognize this man's humility. Recognize that in order to believe and trust on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to be humble in your own sight. The book of Proverbs speaks about this. Lean not upon your own understanding. Do not follow your own ways. Do not follow the imaginations and the desires of your own heart, but come to the Word with a readiness to receive whatever it teaches, whatever it reveals. Well, this man has this disposition. He's ready to receive it. And then Christ teaches him. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Now, these episodes in the Gospels are very unique because what you have is this man interacting with the Word of God incarnate right in front of him. This would be as if your Bible could stand up and start talking to you audibly. And so when this man receives what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, he's receiving what the Word of God has to say. Notice how Christ identifies himself. You have seen him, and it is the one who is speaking to you. God identifies himself by his word. God identifies himself by his word, not by the sight of the eyes. This, is, uh, this is, goes along with the way that men are saved. We are saved by faith. We're not saved by sight. Paul the Apostle will say in 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith and not by sight. This was not only true in the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry, this was also true in the ministry of Moses. Turn back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy Chapter 6.
I'm sorry, not Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22, Moses is recounting for the people what they saw and what they heard at Mount Sinai. But notice the emphasis he placed on what they heard. Verse 22, these words the Lord spoke to your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added, no more. Verse 23, so it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, when the mountain was burning with fire that you came near and said, Surely the, God has, the Lord God has shown us His greatness. We have heard His voice in the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, and yet He lives. Skipping down to verse 28. The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me and said to me, I have heard the voice of this people. They are right in what they have spoken. But as for you, stand here, I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which they are going to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord commanded you. But notice that in that passage in exchange, the thing that stands out at Mount Sinai is not what they saw. It's the voice that they heard. The people recognize God speaks to men, and that's how they knew it was God speaking to them. Well, likewise, in John chapter 9, the blind man is asking who the Christ is, and Christ identifies himself by his word. It is I whom you have seen and the one who is speaking to you. Well, not only does this man have the capacity to receive the truth of Christ, but he responds appropriately. Notice what happens then in verse 38 when he recognizes that this is Christ. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. This statement of faith, the man is confessing that he's trusting in Christ. Now, John Calvin at at this passage comments and he says, What's probably going on here, what this means is this man now becomes one of Jesus' disciples. He, He recognizes that Jesus is the Christ and he begins to follow him to grow in his knowledge. But not only does he confess that I believe, he falls down and worships him. Listen to what the Westminster Confession says. Chapter 14, paragraph 2. They believe to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word for the authority of God himself speaking therein, and they act differently upon that which each particular passage contains yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, embracing the promises of God for this life. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. What they're describing in that paragraph is how the iris functions in saving faith. When the light of the Word is bright, saving faith closes the iris down. When the light of the Word is dim, saving faith opens the iris. And so, whenever the Word reveals something, saving faith responds appropriately to it. Here, this man has learned that this is the Christ, and he receives and rests upon him alone for salvation. 
have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, when we talk about saving faith, we can often get this confused. There is a faith which does not save. It's known as the faith of the demons. James speaks about this in chapter 2 of his letter. He says, the demons believe and tremble. What does James mean by that? He says, the demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. The demons recognize who Jesus is, and yet they tremble. Why is this? Because the faith of the demon, even though it recognizes Christ, does not worship does not bow down to Christ and receive and rest upon Him alone. Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you resting upon Him alone for your salvation, or are you resting on something else? Are you resting upon your knowledge? Are you resting upon your obedience? Are you resting upon your own experiences? You know, there's a a, a line I've heard a preacher use one time. He says, sometimes... We can have faith in our own faith. Sometimes we place trust in the fact that we trust instead of placing trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Second thing to notice about this man's response is not only that he has true faith, but also he he comes to the sum and substance of what saving faith is. The entire testimony of Scripture is testifying to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of the Bible is to reveal to you the glory and the grace of Jesus for your salvation. And the light of this scripture shines just like the light of the sun. It shines at all times upon all those who come to it. The question is, do you have eyes to see? Has God given you the capacity to receive what the Scriptures are teaching? If your trust is not in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are not growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, walking in the way of His commandments, you haven't received, you haven't trusted, and you need to trust. Well, what does it look like when we don't trust? That's what we come to now with the eyes of unbelief. Verse 39, Jesus comments on this episode, this event, and he says, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Now, when he says judgment into this, uh, uh, for judgment I have come into this world, he's not speaking about the final judgment. He's not speaking about pouring wrath upon sinners. He's talking about discernment, distinguishing between the good and the bad, the sheep and the goats. Sometimes judgment can be uh, used in this manner. You know, recently I built a shed, and as I went to pick up lumber, I had to judge, is this warped or is it not warped? I had to discern between the spaghetti two-by-four and the straight two-by-four. That's what Christ is talking about here. Notice how he does it. For judgment, I have come into this world. Christ's own presence makes the distinction. Christ's own glory distinguishes those who believe from those who don't believe. Paul the Apostle uses the same idea in 2 Corinthians. Turn with me there to 2 Corinthians. (laughs) 
2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul is speaking about the gospel ministry. And in the gospel ministry, the aroma of Christ is disseminated everywhere. Look at what he says. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ." Paul's using a different metaphor here. He's using the metaphor of scent and smell. But it's the same effect that Christ is speaking about. Through the gospel ministry, the glory of Christ goes into every place. And the aroma of that Christ to those who are being saved is the aroma of life. To those who are being damned, it's the aroma of death. But it's the same aroma of Christ. It's the same glory of the Son of God. It's the same light that is shining. Now we need to understand a very important principle here about the gospel ministry that God has put in your midst. And if any of you are desiring to enter the gospel ministry, the purpose that God uses you for. The purpose of the gospel ministry is to publish the gospel of Christ. The purpose of the gospel ministry is to publish the gospel of Christ. It is not to save everyone, nor is it to damn everyone. That's God's work. God does that work in his season at his time. The purpose of the ministry of the church, as Paul will say in another place, is to hold forth the word of life and to shine as lights in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. The purpose of the gospel ministry is to publish the gospel of Christ, and that will result in people being saved and people being damned, people being brought to life and people being handed over to death. Why is that? Well, let's look at John chapter 9 and see. Christ says, for judgment I've come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Now, he he develops the metaphor a little bit more, and he's tying in all of chapter 9 now. Remember that chapter 9 was the healing of the blind man, and what, what Christ is dealing with here is that through the physical healing, he's teaching us a spiritual reality. And what he means in this passage is that I have come so that those who are humble in their own opinion... Those who recognize that they have no light, those who do not see and confess that they do not see, will be given light. On the other hand, those who see, those who think they know, those who are uh, trusting in their own knowledge, will be made blind. And that's exactly what happens. Look at the rest of the passage. Verse 40 now. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words 
and said to him, are we blind also? Notice the different response. When the man who was healed, the Lord Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of God? His response, tell me who he is. I'll believe right now. Just tell me. But Christ is now speaking about his divine mission, and the Pharisees respond, are you saying that we're blind? Remember, the blind man was humble. These men display their pride. They cannot accept the fact that, spiritually speaking, they are blind and unable to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an example of spiritual pride, and it comes out, and it can come out in all of us. Just as the blind man had to be humble to receive the grace of Christ, we also have to be humble, but on the lookout for pride. You see, to trust in the Lord Jesus, as it says in the Westminster Confession, to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation, means that you are confessing, I have no other hope. There is nothing in me that can save me. I cannot rely on myself. I cannot trust in my works. I cannot trust in my knowledge. I have nothing except what Christ gives to me. That's what saving faith is. That's what receiving the light of Christ means. But these men are proud. They cannot receive it. And so they say to Christ, are we blind also? Well, Jesus responds to them and explains what he means. Jesus said to them, if you were blind... You would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. What Christ is saying to these men is that because you think you know the truth, because you trust in your own knowledge of the Scriptures, your sin is still upon you. You're not willing to receive the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Notice that these men are Pharisees. Pharisees were well-known at this time and throughout all the New Testament as being uh, very religious men, very devout men, and very knowledgeable in the Scriptures. Paul the Apostle, before he was converted, was a Pharisee. Some of the greatest uh, men of the New Testament period were Pharisees. And these Pharisees who have the theological knowledge and they have an outwardly righteous life cannot admit that they are blind. And so Christ says, Because you say that we see, therefore your sin remains. Notice secondly in this how Christ describes saving faith by describing the benefit of saving faith. You see, earlier with the blind man, he just says, Lord, I believe, and worships him. He receives Christ. Now, these men who reject the light of Christ, who reject the gospel are told what the result of that will be. If you don't receive Christ, you are still in your sins. If you do not rest upon Jesus, your sins remain upon you. And so he takes the effect and uses it to describe the cause. This is what our confession is describing when it says, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life according to the covenant of grace. Justification is whereby God declares you righteous in His sight, no longer guilty. 
Sanctification is that by which God progressively redeems you from the power of sin. And eternal life is enjoying God's fellowship for all eternity, having been delivered from your sins. And so at the end of the day, the reason we believe in the Lord Jesus is because he has been sent by God and because only in Christ can your sin be forgiven. Only in Christ can your sin be removed. A couple of practical applications for us. First, cultivate humility. Cultivate a humility before the Word. I know that many of you in this congregation, uh, older saints who have been walking with the Lord for some time, it can be easy to fall into thinking, I know what the Bible says, and to cease reading it. You need to cultivate a humility before the Scriptures. Remember what Moses told the kings in Deuteronomy 17. He says, the king shall have a copy of this book, and he shall meditate in it day and night. That's what humility, that's what saving faith looks like. Meditating in the Word constantly. Also, as you cultivate this humility, confess your blindness to the Lord. You know, sometimes in life, things don't go the way we think they should. Sometimes the Lord throws us a curveball. Sometimes people are born blind for no apparent reason. And in order to live in these situations, we have to confess before the Lord that we are blind. We don't know everything. We don't know the end from the beginning. We need the Lord's guidance and wisdom to lead us. Finally, recognize that what the gospel ministry has been appointed to do is to preach the truth of Christ. What you, as Christians, have been appointed to be and to do is to be the light of Christ where God has placed you. You should not compromise that light. You should not try to shroud some of that light in case somebody might be offended. Let the light shine and let the light do what it's going to do. God is the one who produces the results. I can, I'll give you a personal testimony on this, on this note. Before I became a Christian, I despised the Bible. In fact, I remember one time in my mother's house as a high schooler, I hated the scriptures so much it was sitting on the coffee table. I took it off, put it in the drawer, and shut it. I didn't even want to see the book because I was convicted and confronted by what I knew was in the book. I had been trained as a child enough to know what the Bible taught. But you see, the offense that I took from the Scriptures, the conviction that I felt is what God used to bring me to submission and to salvation. Do not withhold the light of the Gospel. People will be offended by it. But often God will use that offense to convert them and bring them into the faith of Christ. One final thing on this note, because if you're like me, uh, we can sometimes speak the truth, but not in love. I'm not saying be offensive. Uh, I'm not saying let the light of Christ shine such that it becomes a laser beam cutting people in half. What I am saying is let the light shine. If it offends, it offends. If it comforts, it comforts. If it encourages, it encourages. If it drives people away, it drives them away. 
But our job, just as Christ's job, is to let the light shine. And as the light shines, sinners will be saved and His people will be built up. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus and His light. We thank You that He's come to give sight to the blind. And we pray, O Lord, that You would open our eyes more and more. We pray that You would teach us more of Christ's glory from the Scriptures, that we may indeed believe Him and worship Him. And we pray that You would help us to shine the light of Your Gospel in our place. We ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.